G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today I'm super pumped about this episode with my amazing, amazing friend Danielle DeLorenzo. Uh, we recorded this quite a while ago and have been sitting on this gem for just the right moment and I feel like right now is that right moment. Uh, Danielle is qualified in infant mental health and we talk about all things in and around that from infant to prenatal to postnatal to everything so without further ado Danielle DeLorenzo. You know how like you've been telling me like dude it's you like you need to like do things and I'm, I'm not very good at committing I couldn't I can't even get on a calendar half the time like the world is ending. That's why we're able to record right now because I have time and like it's just crazy. This is what it took to get you on the goddamn podcast. It did. It did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but I think it's absolutely like the perfect time to talk about like infant mental health. Can we talk about? Can we talk about how proud of me I am that I actually, when my son was like slapping me in the face, I was all like. And then like, he was fine because if you, because a lot of times I'll be like, stop. And then he'll just be like, what? Boom, boom. And it's just like, ah. then everybody's not regulated. And then the attachment becomes negatively enforced. Yes. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand, including me sometimes. And, like, and it's hard to understand it, I think, sometimes when you're like when it's you and you're in it because it's hard to like put the distance in there to be able to see it from a outsider's perspective. Well, that's why I was saying on my stories, like I suck at this. Like I suck at, at doing this. Like a lot of the times that's why I need to get consistent. And like I record us, like I record Luke and I all day long because I love to see his progress and seeing videos is the best way to see his progress. And I watch it, our interaction and Alexis always comments on, on our relationship. Like Luke and I, you do, Sarah does. Everybody always comments about the nature, the dyad of Luke and I, and it's evolved into this, like, it's so strong. And so, um, it is literally the foundation that supports everything for him to be able to grow and be as independent as he can. It's like it, and it just happened because like I let him lead me and yeah. a lot of moms, dads, parents, caregivers, it's hard to let your children lead you when you have a set objective of what things should be and how things should feel. And you have to kind of leave all of that at the door and then kind of see what does your kid need in that moment and how can I react to help them? Because this is the time that I have to help them figure out how to navigate their gigantic feelings because toddlers have gigantic feelings and so do infants they're just crazy rage filled at times you know and that can really stress caregivers out 
new moms. Stress anyone out. Stress me out. I'm not even doing it. Right. Look, you're getting anxious just listening to what it, you know, well, it's not Instagram. Motherhood is not Instagram. And like postpartum health, you know, that's like my thing. Like I, now that I've lived it and the, the healthcare system failed me, it's failed millions of women who have had babies, who have had to return to work before they're ready, who doesn't, who are asking for help and doctors are just saying, it's cool, just wait. <laughs> kind of like when you have concerns about your kid's development and they're like, no, nah, no, nah, just wait, just, just wait. Yeah, let's wait, let's wait during the most research-based time frame, birth to five, let's wait. Let's not front load with amazing, you know, professionals and services when they need it, when the brain is most pliable. No. No, let's wait. Let's wait. (laughs) Such a backwards mindset. It's very, um, very disheartening. I wonder if it's the same in every country, though. It probably is. You know, I feel like it's interesting because I talk to you and we talk about differences between Australia and the U.S. And then I talk to my good friend Faye over in the U.K. And she talks about the differences between all of that as well. And I think that the underlying problem, regardless of the differences, is access Mm. and quality of care. And I think that across the board and also like the mindset of what preventative healthcare should look like and what it should entail. And it's specifically mental health services for families with children under the age of three specifically, because people don't even know it exists. Mm. Like, well, that's why, when, I, that's why I wonder whether it's different in different countries because we have like universal healthcare here. It's like access is, there's less barrier to entry to access services. And I know we have uh, like specific mental health uh, teams that work uh, prenatal uh, right through to, well, pretty much we cover everything. We have teams. Yes, they're really small teams, but they do exist. I have heard of them. So that's why I wonder whether the access thing, I can see it being a, a big issue, especially where, uh, if you're in a health system where you know it's like insurance or you have to pay for it kind of thing because that creates a huge barrier to entry. But yeah, be interesting. You know, even the differences from New Jersey, Pennsylvania to California, I, um, I was issued a scholarship from the state of Pennsylvania back, I, I want to say it was like 2011, 2012, to go to Chatham University and receive my certification in infant mental health. And it was a year's worth of studies. And I kick myself. I should have just went for the dual master's program at that point because it was like a entire master's program. And then like you go through this certification process and there was like certain levels of practitioners. And then what you do is you utilize that within the early intervention system. So as an occupational therapist, I was able to utilize my infant mental health background by providing OT services to my kiddos on caseload that came or who were living at an orphanage, who were living in various foster homes, who are having different specific needs that were very much so trauma 
related Mm. so that I can help improve not only through occupational therapy, but that mental health dyad between like caregiver and, and parent, because at that age, and this is what like Sarah from OT for life. And I talk about all the time, like it's so much about the parents when you go into that home. And when, if a parent is disconnected or not able to engage or is uncomfortable with what's happening within their relationship, if you're going to try to put interventions in place or support before you even touch that relationship, it's not going to work. But working on that relationship will naturally just support the child's overall development, the relationship as a whole. So I think sometimes people get nervous because they want to start doing interventions and they see all these needs. And then they're like, well, the mom doesn't engage and they don't do this, but it's like, there's so much more going on. And it's unfortunate that a lot of people might not have that mental health background, especially new grads or Mm. new practitioners going into certain fields or early intervention. And then they don't really know or have key like, you know, like reference points, like when, how do I know how to support this when this comes up? So, so the, the course that you did, was it, so when you're looking at infant mental health, is it mainly looking at, so the the actual modalities that you're doing, is it mainly targeted at the parents as having an impact on the infant? So it, it really was about the foundational structures of the social emotional development of the infant, the regulation of the infant, and then also the parent and then the dyad between. So it was taking both the parent isolatively, the child, the infant, talking about how resilient an infant actually is. I, in the beginning, what there was this huge like light bulb because I've been in early intervention now 20, 21 years. So I, and I love the little babies. My favorite caseloads are birth to one. That's just, oh my God, when they're birth to one, it's like, I get super excited. And uh, you know, I can't picture but, you being super excited. I don't know what that I would know, look right? like. Uh, what would... <laughs> <laughs> As I sip my coffee. Feel free. There's a lot to get through there. Um, but like, a lot of the kids on my caseload, I just remember thinking, okay, I have to work with mom, dad, caregiver first, build a relationship with them as I'm working with the baby. And you have to figure out how to like do it all. And it seems like so much, but, and sometimes it doesn't feel like anything at all. I think sometimes it just feels like you're talking and you're like, how is this helpful? But it is because you're using these frameworks to guide conversation. So I'm not a mental health practitioner by any means, but my goal is to support that initial foundation and help guide the, the, the parent, the caregiver. If they need more additional support, I'm able to identify that and help them get set up and referred to further mental health outpatient services, but I'm still trained in that foundational skills, at least from parents who, and then they also follow through gestation, like throughout the entire pregnancy and then right after birth and up to age five. And what happens about the connectedness of that. And then they also talk about parents that are not biological parents and how 
that whole nurture versus nature where I have seen babies in their, in, in a home before, let's say in one home setting, and let's say they've suffered trauma or they have been born addicted to a substance. When they were in the right environment, let's say environment B, progress was happening more quickly. The baby was responding more positively. The nervous system was more regulated. So what we know is that environment plays a huge role in addition to how everyone interacts within the environment and interacts with the baby. So is the the, the qualification, so what was the actual qualification called? It was called, um, it was a certificate in infant mental health. Yeah. And it's from Chatham University. And then it made me eligible to be able to take the test for like, it was like infant mental health practitioner one, infant mental health practitioner two. Now you're going to make me look. And I started the certification process in New Jersey because I was working for Rutgers University at the time doing birth to three um, evaluations and assessments and OT. And when I came here, I was like, okay, how do I continue this? And they're like, oh, it doesn't exist here. And I was like, what? What is that? What do you mean? What do you mean? Like infant mental health exists everywhere. Like, what are you talking about? Like infants don't have mental health in this state. They don't have mental health. They don't even, they're, they're just babies. They just, they don't, don't, they don't know how to talk, but what's crazy is they are so amazing at communicating to you. If you just listen and make it's, it's really all about the the caregiver at its like the more mentally healthy you are, the better the baby, but then hence the problem. How do you identify the mental health? you know, issues in the first place when you don't have an appropriate healthcare system or family supports or all these dynamics to help support that in place. So it's not as easy as, as it sounds by any means, but Mm. I think that postpartum and pregnancy in general are just looked at as just like an essential function of a, of a lady. And then in like six weeks, you got to just get it together and go right back into work. Like your whole life didn't change. And you know what? Some women, that might be the case. I'd say that would be a very, very small minority. But I think the thing is, instead of society looking at pregnancy as a whole, they should be looking at it as individualized experiences for each woman. And I think that they would be shocked as to how many women suffer traumatic birth or some type of depression or anxiety after birth, before birth, during birth, second, like all these things that if we just supported in the beginning, preventatively, we can help support that dyad more quickly when the brain is more pliable. But we're not doing that. We're not listening to the research. We're not listening to the babies. We're not listening to the moms. So I'm wondering... Obviously, the the qualification itself isn't meant to be like a standalone uh, qualification. It's kind of like a, a toolkit no, to add to he... what you've already got. Is it? It's not. It's not like just an OT thing. Like any any other professions can well, do it. Or, but I think that's the thing. I think it can be standalone because, to okay. my understanding, if I were to obtain the master's program there, 
Oh, yeah, I could have been able be. to go yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, into I, that, right? But my certification, yeah. I th- for what it served for me, was an additional qualification to specialize my caseload yeah. with a population that would benefit from my background in behavior, occupational therapy, and mental health. So I would, and, and I would be able to call myself a, an infant mental health practitioner and I do believe like, and, and see, this is where, if I would have gone further, this is what I was going to wonder, like, can I just provide isolative services as an infant mental health practitioner, or does it have to be a part of my occupational therapy scope? Like, because it fits into both, Yeah, yeah. Extent, but I just didn't know what scope. this, right. And I didn't know like what the certification would give me in a sense because i was just wondering like with the cert anyway to just sort of adding on to your occupational skill set um i i would imagine that say you know probably not a psychologist but say a social worker does that same cert and adds it to their skill set or a nurse does it and adds it to their skill set those even those three examples so an ot a social worker and a nurse you'd end up with very very different practitioners and i guess i'm a little bit biased because i've always worked in mental health but i know that that mental health type stuff fits really well with ot's you bring up an excellent point because every single practitioner comes with their own scope and then is learning about infant mental health and what's doing is they're taking it and applying it to their field and i think ot has the most versatile adaptable, out-of-the-box, in a sense, way of thinking about infant mental health because it truly makes it so individualized. Individualized. It's not like a one-size-fits-all, like this worked for this person, so I'm going to do this. OT doesn't really work like that. Like, I mean, it's, I mean, I get it. I know that like, it shouldn't work (laughs) like that. Right. Okay. Okay. But like, I know that we try to practice and I would hope that everybody tries to practice, you know, in the most individualistic mindset, because that's what the foundation of occupational therapy should be, even though we're still fighting for defining who we are, what we do. And people still think we get people jobs and, I am still called a behaviorist or something else. And it's, but it's, it's only, it's, there's, it's a multifaceted problem. Not enough people know who we are because not enough people want to know who we are. And then when they need to know who we are, they don't care or might not, if they do care, pay attention enough or understand. Because when we try to explain it, if we're not explaining it in a pretty general way, it can get very, very easily misunderstood. I think I got what you're saying. Yeah. That's a whole nother podcast, that one. It, I, I'm just, so anyway. <laughs> we'll put the a whole pin in that one. Occupational that. therapist and mental health <laughs> go together very nice when you're talking about the babies. And I highly recommend that anybody going into early intervention, whether you be an OT, speech, PT, teacher, 
early intervention, all practitioners should be versed in mental health, just like all general education teachers should have a special education requirement as well because of inclusive practices. It's not for any other purpose, but other than to arm everybody with the tools necessary to be an all-inclusive service. It's not about, I only want to teach Gen Ed. You're a teacher. You teach students. You can't decide whether or not they're going to be in your gen ed class or a specialized setting. And, and when you get your students, you're, I would much rather want to be armed with tools necessary to help all students succeed rather than feel like I don't know what to do mm-hmm. when out of the norm. Because back in the 80s, we didn't have like a lot of segregation or, you know, come to you I'm remembering to pause (laughs) it's a long pause I think that inclusive practices are not a norm as much as they should be Because now we're seeing kids coming in with a lot of trauma that is being misinterpreted for special education service needs, not emotional, social, emotional supports. So kids are often getting segregated or put in different settings based on their trauma rather than being supported in their appropriate academic setting, but having their needs be as supported where it actually needs to be. why their grades are impacted, why their attendance is impacted, why they're having difficulties or failing. It's not because they have a disability or they have emotional disturbance. It's because they have trauma. But that can look very different if you don't have training or if you don't know how to approach this. You just think, what will I do? I'll just put them in, I'll, I'll give them service. It's like, but what are the appropriate services? What are the, what is the area of need and how do we get better at identifying the area of need and putting more money together to support that at risk population that we all know if we had more money to support for preventative services, we would reduce all costs across a lifespan. And if you even just think about somebody having a bad day, when you have a bad day, it's, you're not going to do as well as you have a good day. Yep. But if you're having a lot of bad days, that's going to impact your grades. That's going to impact other factors. It's going to impact your social interactions. So where is the problem? Is it really academics? Or is it all these other things that we should be looking at? And again, whose responsibility is it to look at? And whose responsibility is it to fund those services? <laughs> And then be able to support on such a large level. You're bringing up some. I want everybody to get everything they need, say, but that doesn't work like that. Bringing up some <laughs> questions I don't know if I'm qualified to even input on. Um, one thing I'm I- not either. No, That's no, why it's no. like so. Like you know, like what do you do? You can only present it in a way like I don't. How do you do that? Like what is it? you know what I mean? Like in a oh, yeah, yeah. kind of like like a what? <laughs> so one of the things I'm curious about is I think most people's perception about sort of mental health just in general in that age range is probably just like 
with regards to the mother and things like prenatal psycho, uh, postnatal psychosis, postnatal depression, that kind of stuff. What other things have you seen? What other things like are, are there any? I guess what I'm looking for is are there uh, diagnose specific diagnoses that you're seeing and picking up and working with after doing this qualification, or is it more like? I'm looking at the difference between mental illness and, say, mental well-being, or is it more the mental well-being aspect of it? Like, where so, where does this where does this situate you in in that spectrum? Oh, big. So question. there's a couple there's a couple answers to that question. Okay, give me the so. <laughs> so I'll use myself as an example. Okay, I had PTSD. Yep. After my birth. I didn't even know that I could get PTSD from that in my mental health training from when I remember like in high. Okay. So like now that I'm thinking about it and after, you know, I had sought out treatment for PTSD and started thinking about things, everything started to make sense because I was channeling back to all the things that I was learning and it was like, here are signs and identifications of if a mother might have suffered this or this suffered this. And, but I wouldn't, I didn't put it together because I didn't feel depressed. And like, I know that seems silly, but I think a lot of people just think women get depressed after birth, right? So now we're talking like after they give birth. So you're talking about like, is it something like, is it an exist? Is there an existing mental mm. illness? Is there, is this just the onset because of the pregnancy, the traumaticness, because I still have the PTSD and, and anxiety, but I'm working on it and it's getting better, but I'm not sure if it's ever going to go away. So at this point, it's an ongoing problem because it's three years later and I'm still working through it. But I always wonder if they identified it maybe like a year and a half, two years like sooner would I have been able to manage it differently when I was going through this period? Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Thank goodness. My friend, I spoke with her. She does this for work. And I said, I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but it sounds like I don't feel depressed, but I can't leave the baby. I can't stop looking at him. I can't fall asleep. I have to make sure he's okay. And I wasn't, but I was fine. I wasn't, but I just wouldn't let him out of my sight. But a lot of moms do that, right? Like they don't let their newborn babies out of their sight, right? So I wasn't really doing anything out of the ordinary. And I'm a pretty resilient person to begin with. And this is also my field. So everyone's like, dude, relax. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're, you know, but I think my training allowed me to identify and just further give me a framework and a new eye, like a new hat. Every time I learn a new skill, that, that goes in OT, it's almost like it's at the forefront of my mind. Like, so now I've learned all this new information. So now I'm going in with my OT lens, but there's like this mental health gloss, like over it. It's always kind of like in the background, like pick up on this. I see a red flag. Oh, I got this. It's kind of like when you go in and do an evaluation, we utilize an M chat and they're indicators for autism. Now it doesn't mean you have autism. It just means you could have high risk. After a while, you can see the repetitive risk factors, right? 
But sometimes you're just kind of like, ah, is there just, do we just need to keep going? Do we just need some exposure? Do we just need to figure out what is the environment, all this stuff? Because it's a very pliable um, path of development, relationship, social attachment. So I think for me, the training allowed me to now have a new perspective on approaching and being able to identify, is this caregiver suffering from an ongoing condition? Is this something because of what's happening? And a lot of the times, a lot of our parents are either in, that I was experiencing with at that moment, it's the very beginning. They haven't gotten a diagnosis yet. They don't know what's going on. They're in denial. Like there's all these things. And it's like, I'm not qualified to manage that but I am able to help them sort it out and get them referred to the right place. But if there's people that just kind of like need that extra like strategy suggestions, you start seeing that they're making these little improvements. Their demeanor is, is increasing over time. You're seeing that progress happen, you know, with these basic just supports and you're like, all right, you just needed a little push. But then the other families, you're not really seeing that or you're seeing a regression that's when you need to make sure it's almost like being a mandated reporter. Now that I'm an infant mental health practitioner, I'm always like, where are my mental health people at? Because I think I got one for you. Like, I think you need to, it's like, so my referral radar is always out because identification and early identification is prevalent. So does that, I hope that that like. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of what I would had expected it to be. Um, and I think that's one of the things I, that sort of perspective on things is the perspective I'd love all OTs to be able to take if they're not working in mental health specifically to be able to even just be able to pick up risk factors. There's a lot of things that OT can do out of the box just with the risk factors, but most people don't have the awareness to be able to see them in a lot of cases. Um, that's kind of where I differentiate like mental well-being and mental illness as being sort of separate things. Like I, I feel the mental well-being uh, is more of those risk factors and those sort of lifestyle factors that, you know, at the moment there's going to like with everything that's going on in this messed up world, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be putting them or that are going to be going through situations, whether it's just being locked up at home all the time that are going to, uh, be counter to their sort of well-being routines, habits, uh, things. I've seen a lot of people, you know, complaining that the gym's closed and that kind of stuff because that's normally their their outlet. Um, right. It's not necessarily a specific mental illness, like a di- like diagnostically, but it's still going to have a massive impact on people. And I think that's where any OTs, you don't have to work in mental health to be able to work with that stuff. Yeah. And, and think about it like this too. And it was so cool because, you know, my, so my in-laws were here. Right. And when I started noticing that Luke couldn't communicate, that was going to make him frustrated. That doesn't mean that he has like an explosive, like behavior, like issue. He can't talk to you. And his go-to is I'm going to headbang or I'm going to do something to get your attention because that's, that's what I know to do. And I'm fast, just like my mom. And I'm just really fast and I can't talk. So I'm just going to go crazy. And then everything's going to be cool. Right. But like, 
what I noticed was if I started teaching him deep breathing and started giving him when I noticed him starting those preventative, even with your at risk, even preventative strategies are the same thing. So when we start to see Luke getting worked up and we're like, now he might go, no, 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 and get mad. But then all of a sudden, like the other day, he was sitting down and he was getting upset and he goes, and my father in goes, look, you taught him that. And I was like, oh yeah, look, I did teach him that. Like, because I think again, when we think of a 2.7 year old, we don't think of them having the ability or the capability to control their regulation. And you know what? They're really not supposed to at this point. That's what we're here for. That's our job to help them regulate. Um, and that's a whole nother, we can talk about, like, there's so many other like sideways that that can go. I'm going to start making a topic list out of this podcast. You should, you should, because you know, like (laughs) I, you, you can just see, you saw it in my face. Like she wants to go down that road, but she's going (laughs) to, she's going to rear right back, rear right back. Um, oh, and now I forgot what we were talking about. 2.7 year old regulating. Right. So because I gave Luke the tools and started modeling it for him every single day, Yes, he is autistic. Yes, he has suffered brain trauma. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have feelings and doesn't know how to be able to. And just because he can't express them the way that we're used to seeing people express their feelings, all that means is we just have to listen and take a look and give him more tools. And it's not going to be easy. And we can't stop when, you know, two year olds, their main objective is to say no. That's like their main occupation besides play. It's to say no, right? So so I always laugh when a parent's like, oh, I tried it and it didn't work. Well, how long did you try it? Like a day. Like a day. He's like, I own you. You're done. You tried a day. That's it, right? I've been working on breathing with Luke almost a year and a half, going on a a long time. And it's still not 100%, but I'm doing it anyway Hmm. because- I'm fostering that, that dyad, right? Like even like today when we were dancing and he gets overstimulated. Now let's talk about how this revolves into like a, a well-being or a mental health or a dyad or how it can, how something can build to become like a long-term problem, especially when you have a neurodiverse child or a child that is going to require a little bit more um, out of the box thinking to be able to help them learn and grow. Right. Um, So when Luke was slapping me in the face and slapping my chest, the other thing is when he puts his head into me, he doesn't really grade his input. And what everyone wouldn't have noticed on that video is he gave me a fat lip actually, but he was just trying to shove his face in my face that's how he shows me he loves me. He, he's, he can't grade pressure. Poor dude, just everything is full on force. He's an aggressive hugger. Like, I mean, but look at me, I'm hyper, I'm energetic. I'm always like, you know what I mean? So like, I see a lot of me in him, but then I also see his inability to be able to regulate and get overstimulated. And he goes from zero to a hundred and then he starts slapping and hitting, but he's not hitting me because he's mad. But imagine someone who didn't have my training and maybe they had a little bit of postpartum and now their postpartum, right? Maybe it wasn't managed right. Now let's say they have a two-year-old and now let's say they're pregnant again. And let's say now they've had another baby. 
but let's say their other kid has a lot of behaviors and is hitting or something like that. Right. And now you have this dyad where you're getting frustrated because you you're just going back and forth. That's going to make you sad. That's going to still make you frustrated. And then you're not going to be your best self and be able to then interact with and, and be like a mom and know how to like, cause I know there's been so many times where I don't even have another kid and I'm, I'm looking at Luke and I'm just like, don't hit me. And like, and then he comes full on at me, like punching me in the face. And I'm like, I totally deserve that. I mean, I didn't really deserve it, but my reaction prompted Prompted exactly. But, but do you see how that over a period of time can make a child and a a parent distant, how that can impact the relationship, how that can impact the mental health, the mental well being? It could, it could, be the the beginning of an ongoing problem that all could have been prevented if we had preventative care and early identification and just at risk services, no matter what, for all. I mean, you're going to have people that you're going to honestly, like you always have people that are going to not like slip through the cracks or do. Anytime you've got a, segmented health service there's always going to be gaps in between doesn't matter how comprehensive you might feel it is it's just the nature but i just think the mindset the societal mindset of postpartum care needs to change and it needs to change now more than ever like i don't know it's it's scary how little is actually even understood or emphasized and about like postpartum and um, in general, just infant mental well-being and health. So you, you spoke earlier about, uh, or use the example of one of the things that you've done with Luke, the the breathing to calm him down. What sort of what are what are some of the other sort of I guess modalities that you have in your sort of arsenal with re- like for working with someone? Uh, in their mental well-being? What other things have you taught people, showed people? So what I always like to say is, you know, it's so individualized. You have to meet the child where they're at and provide them with the just right opportunity for them to be able to grow and learn and continue to build a foundation, right, that you can scaffold upon. So when I speak about tools that I've used, my do they're individualized and it in you know like but from general stuff we love zones of regulation as occupational therapists I don't know if you've heard of it I love it it helps you know it's something that we personalize it to like if you like the minions well what minion are you today like we've even paired it with like the in and out things like are you joy are you in you know like are you tigger Inside out, out. yes, yeah. Oh, right, right. (laughs) Are you the burger? uh, Are you the fries? Are you the shake? I mean, what are you today? If you put in and out on my zones of regulation, I might be more inclined to be in a happier place and then also eat more burgers. That's mommy and daddy's Um, zones of regulation right there. Um, but I mean, if you have my I like to give them tools for kids that are able to identify and self-regulate and tools for kids that are not there yet. And then there's also the tools for where you're going to have to be the regulator. Like, so I'm Luke's like regulator. So a lot of the times, like we use a lot of heavy work 
heavy, heavy work all the time. But first, heavy work. I always which, Rachel from which the for those, Project. I love her. For those not in the know, what what does that? Well, what what's heavy work? What does it mean? So what, what heavy work means is that fancy word proprioception, right? So it's where we are in space, where the body is in space. And we all have receptors throughout our joints. And when we are providing input to our entire body in specific ways, it can help to calm and organize the nervous system. And then what should happen after your nervous system is calm and organized, you should have this adaptive response to the environment and be more calm and be able to just be attentive and navigate and be independent and just kind of do what you need to do. Whereas Luke is so hyper legit from the moment he wakes up until the moment he goes to sleep. I didn't have enough input to give him, but now we've been doing a ton of heavy work where I've thrown a bunch of beanbags. This kid crashes into the beanbag like 40 times, but he's just, but he's getting, but he's not getting disorganized. See, so I'm able to, to help tell parents, like when you have kids, because see, like, I think people think when kids are aggressive, they think that they're suffering from like a mental health problem or it's a behavior, but it's like, no, they're aggressive because they need more input. They're craving more input. And every time they hit you or hit something, they're getting input. They're getting feedback, that strong feedback that they need because Sometimes it's not registering the way that it should. So like, I don't let Luke do zoomies or, but he'll like do full on spins. And I always try to rotate him back and like equal it out. But I know we're kind of sidetracked and you asked me for tools and my tools. But this is kind of like my tools for my kiddos that have sensory processing, like in self-regulation that are also having aggressive behaviors. So we're trying to do organization stuff heavy work to the body. So then we can get that input we need. And then we'd be more receiving of just natural directives and flow of life. But also I think there are for kids who need to take a break. I think it's really important to teach kids how to take a break and have them have their own safe area where they can take a break and do so. So for a while, the way we managed Luke's headbanging, I allowed him to be in the bedroom. I I still have the bed in the middle of the room. So he's not able to have access to the wall. He has it's his room is completely taken out, but he has a freaking Tempur-Pedic mattress with all these pillows, all of these cushions to give him the input that he needs because it takes him like one to two hours to sleep. And then what was happening was he would be headbanging up to almost 70 or 80 times on the wall, on the, on the headboard. So I started to help people that had kiddos that had a lot of these aggressive behaviors by just trying to regulate and manipulate the environment. Because if you manipulate the environment, it just helps naturally calm the visual system. And if the visual system is calm then everything else can kind of help to calm kind of come down with it. So it's about like simple manipulations in the environment, being able to use co-regulation strategies. So that's a big thing in OT and not a lot of people use therapeutic use of self. Um, But in mental health, I feel like we do use it a lot, like all the time. But if I say therapeutic use of self, sometimes people kind of look at me like, what do you mean? Like, I don't, I, I remember being like asking the same question, like, what? 
how am I a therapeutic tool? Like I provide the therapeutic tools, but you use yourself as a therapeutic tool. So like when Luke gets really loud, I'll be like, Luke, what's going on? Do you need a hug? And I'll lower my voice. And he naturally lowers right down with me. So I try to teach the parents. And then I also try to gauge how they're responding to my feedback. If they're getting overwhelmed by even the littlest amount of feedback, I got to change what I'm doing. So that's where that's, it's like that unique like style to taking it by each person's pace, but really just being able to figure out what each kid needs to regulate and how the parents or caregivers can help them do that. And if the kids are able to do that on their own, exploring those tools that are going to be, I love like size of the problem stuff. I've seen a lot of that out there too now, which is, have you ever seen that? Like, what's the size of your problem? Is it the size of like, like, like here are examples of problems that are like this big or this would be, or, oh, you can't see me. I'm all like using hand gestures. So like, and and I'm probably not explaining this right because um, a lot of my students on my caseload I can't, um, this isn't applicable for, but I just, I, we got it for a lot of other kids, um, on caseload because I thought it was really cool. So it's talking about like, what is a small problem? What's a medium sized problem? What's a large size problem? You love how I was making circles that were like big and large. Right. Um, so then this way it's like a large problem, like, my house is on fire. That's a large problem, right? What's a small problem? Johnny said that I was mean. Like, that's a small problem. We're going to fix that. We're going to redirect that. So it helps give perspective. So then you can really start to gauge the kids' responses to then navigate that at risk. Is there something going on here based on how they're responding when you're teaching them size of problems and then how they're emotional? So really like, it is all about, you're just assessing all, all every moment of every day. And I think like, that's different. That's where like, because I am an assessor by nature, when I started to get into mental health, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Cause I'm just, you got to assess and adjust all day long. Cause it can change that, that rapidly. And you have to be prepared and armed with tools to be able to support your clients and support your parents and support the caregivers and the kids. That's our job. Yeah. I think one thing I've, I can't remember, I'm sure I've said it on either this podcast or another podcast, too many podcasts. Um, but when, with regards to what you were saying before about therapeutic yourself, you are like, we, we all, we all know that the, the three things that we do as OTs is we either adjust the person, we upskill, whatever, change perspectives, whatever it is, we can change the environment or we can change the occupation itself. When you're working with someone, you are part of the environment. So you right. while you're while you're in there looking at, you know, the house and the social environment and all that sort of stuff, you can also adjust yourself as part of the environment to have an impact on the individual and their occupational performance. And I think I I I feel like too many people look at therapeutic use of self as like this whole separate component this whole separate concept over here and here's what we're doing and maybe if i get the opportunity i'll try and add some of that in i'm like it doesn't work like that it's they have to integrate it it's it's integrated it's part of it whether you are aware of it and using it or not if you're not aware of it it just means it's a tool that is happening anyway 
and you have no control over it. Whereas if you are consciously aware of it, you can use that to your advantage. And I think more people need to, even just becoming conscious of it is like the first step. I think that there are so many OTs that are so mental health based and don't even know it. And if they got additional training, just some intro stuff, I think the connecting of the dots and those reflectors and how I was talking about before, like now I have like this other lens, like this other hat that I'm wearing when I'm going in there. I think that as OTs, I don't think we really realize until we're shown how useful and resourceful we are in that mental health world. Definitely. Definitely. And uh, I think I think one of the things uh, with regards to that and like, say, comparing working with, you know, physical illnesses and that compared to uh, mental health is if you're not aware of your impact as a part of the environment, you can, in the physical world, it's pretty obvious. Like if you're touching something, you're touching something. If you're not, you're not. Whereas your impact as a part of someone's, I guess, mental health environment is often unseen. So if you're unaware of it, you can be having either potentially a really positive impact or a really negative impact and you have no idea. And that that can be dangerous. You bring up such an interesting point. It reminds me of when I was brand new, not to early intervention, but to being an occupational therapist in an early intervention setting. Before that, I was just a teacher. And I remember working on increasing the variety of tastes and textures with a little boy that didn't want to eat anything. And I remember I went way too fast trying to get him to eat something or touch something. And he was not very happy with me. And then every single time I showed up at the house, he just started screaming, throwing stuff at me. Like it was like I had done this. And it was then the third week. And I looked at the mom and I said, mom, She's like, but you, you're the feeding specialist. You're the one they said that is going to help. I go, listen to me. I've already spent the past three weeks looking for another therapist who is just as qualified as I am to be able to help you. I said, I got to tell you something. I'm so sorry. I am new and I do have this background, but something I did has created this relationship with your son and I cannot have him waste any more time having, not getting his services. And sure enough, I had found a woman who was perfect, went in the house. And a couple of months later, this kid was meeting their goals and going on because I was having a very negative impact on everything related to food. I'm the lady that's going to make him touch things that we're trying to make him eat. Oh my goodness. And I, and I will hold that with me my entire career because the minute I see hesitation, I go uber slow, like uber, uber slow. Because, oh, <laughs> yes. Hey. Hi, Rusty. I'm upset about the world too, Rusty. That is now the second time that's ever happened. Uh, he just wanted to be like, yo, I just woke up. What's happening? Who's that other dog? Oh, wait, it's me. <laughs> Where were we before that rude interruption? 
Well, you know, I'm a really big believer. I, I have a lot of sensory sensitivities. You know, I have a sensory processing issues and clothes are does. real. Everyone does. Everyone yeah. does. But like clothes are a big issue for me. And like dress clothes are my worst nightmare. Like I would fail ep- epically if I was in corporate America. I'd never be able to wear like dress shoes or dress pants or anything. But it's interesting because... I definitely have people that have interacted with me very differently because I have a very hippie kind of like thrifty style that doesn't really look reflective of my um, professional nature or my areas of expertise. So it's funny because when I start talking, people look very confused that what I'm talking is coming out of like my body. And I'm just like, it shouldn't even matter what I look like. You should just be listening to me and not be so like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Aren't you like 12? Just no. Such a big voice comes out of such a small person. <laughs> well, you know what? It comes in handy. Let me tell you. I can imagine. I make sure to fight for what's best for kids and make sure to just keep, you know, just saying stuff. <laughs> I think the one big thing that... I want people to know about infant mental health is it's really as simple of how you interact with your baby. And as a newborn, a newborn goes through several different stages, like quiet, awake, like alert, kind of drowsy, sleepy. There are opportune times to interact with your infant. And it was so funny because I made my husband this binder of like all the things infants do. And he's like, what is this? And I'm like, read the binder, like know everything. This is when you interact with Luke. It'll be great. Now you don't need to do it like I did it. But also I had a lot of anxiety. So, and it was like, I was a therapist armed with information and a binder. It was bad. It was just bad. But Imagine if people had information about how infants did interact and how their arousal levels were, because I know I was like, is he breathing? Is he supposed to be sleeping like an hour and a half? Like what, what is it? Is this normal? Like, when do I, why isn't he interacting with me? What is he even supposed to do right now? He's just smiling at me. He's pooping. He's peeing. He needs to eat. Do they do anything else? Like you're, it's, you, you know, like, even though like I know development and like, I am an, you know, deemed this is my area of expertise. I'm just, I was still so perplexed by the tiny human phase. And honestly, like all I had was books and other people's experiences and all my knowledge. And then I became a mom. And then I became a mom that had a traumatic birth. And now I have a neurodiverse child. My whole entire professional and personal life are colliding. And everyone's like, you're the best person for the job. That doesn't really help my mental health. (laughs) So like, imagine if the mindset was, this must be very challenging for you. What Mm. supports do you need to help get you through this? That conversation is much different than, oh, you're the bastard. He'll act like that. It's totally normal. No, it's not normal for a toddler to bang their head 70 times a day because they're angry. That's a problem (laughs) because they're upset and they can't talk. Like, so 
That's why I always wonder. Like, I've seen this a lot um, with OTs who are mums, and I've seen people comment about, oh, you know, you're going to have the, you're going to be the best mum because you're an OT. Or, like, I'm like, that's, that's a lot of pressure to put on someone because of a degree that they chose to do at some point. And really, aside from a little skill set, it's probably not got a huge amount of bearing on what kind of mum you're going to be, that kind of thing. Because like you were saying earlier, like it's sometimes hard to, uh, I guess, even see what's going on when you're that close to it. Well, that might actually be before the podcast when we were talking about that. But it's sometimes hard to see, you know, what's going on with your own situation because you're so close to it and it's really difficult to be able to take that step back and create some, enough space to be able to see from that external point of view. And I've always wondered about, because I've seen that a lot, Every pretty much every therapist I know who is a mum or has become a mum, I've seen that comment somewhere amongst their, their social media feeds and that kind of thing. And I'm like, that. I'm so, I've never said it because I'm so cautious about it. I'm like, that just seems like, you know, now if anything goes wrong, like, oh, why is this, it shouldn't be going wrong because I'm an OT. It shouldn't be going wrong because, you know, like you said, this is my area. Like, it seems like it's some undue pressure for something that doesn't need to be there or doesn't actually hold a lot of weight anyway. I I think that the comment is meant to calm. The comment is oh, yeah, meant yeah. with beautiful intention. But I think when you're living it, I know for me, what helped me the most was the people that were like, what do you need? You're killing it right now. You must be exhausted. I know this is your worst fear coming true. Like people that just kind of let me feel, you got to just feel like they're your emotions. You have to own them. But when you start realizing, like I started realizing that I had a problem and I needed to seek out additional therapy to work on my PTSD. And now I see someone that is specific to birth trauma that's helping me work through my PTSD because I knew because of my training, because of who I am, that I was at a point where I'm like, this keeps impacting the quality of my life. And I know it shouldn't, and I don't want it to, and it doesn't need to. I just need the tools to help to figure out how to navigate what's happened to me. I didn't ask to have my pregnancy end in an emergency C-section, not knowing like what was going to happen, if we were going to live or die, like if my, if my kid was going to end up in the, like, it was so fast and so traumatic that you literally were one person 10 minutes prior. And then now you're this different person. And it's interesting because it's like, okay, you're not different. Right. So like a, another, like big phrase is when will I get my body back? Your body never left. You evolved and changed to birth. How's a baby. And like, That's a pretty big I don't understand. It's, that is not something that's going to just go right back. It's not a rubber band. Like, but it is flexible, kind of like a rubber band. I feel like somebody used that in my office the other day to help kids be like, you got to be flexible like a rubber band. And I loved it because it worked with one of our kids that has difficulty with flexibility. Um, but, oh, now I got sidetracked again. Always. 
<laughs> yeah, I. I think there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of things, and again, this is probably another one we can add to the topic list. There's a lot of things that uh, happen, are said, are commonly referred to, etc. During oh, right, right, pregnancy right, right. and that kind of thing. That I ninety nine percent of the time, I would hope that they're you know they're coming from a place of love, and it's because people care, and you know they're almost they feel like they're cheering you on, kind of thing. Yes, but it. it sometimes isn't as constructive and productive as the person may have hoped it would be. Right. And I think too, like, there's also like a flip side to that too. Like there's this whole like stigma as well. Like, okay. So especially like, you know, when you're pregnant and you have a baby, like you're just so excited. It's all, it's, it's awesome. It's all these great things. And then your kid's getting older, but then your kid isn't talking and then they're not answering to their name and then they're not doing all these other things. And now people kind of don't know. It's like the elephant in the room. I know like autism was the elephant in the room. Right. And I'm just like, and I'm all like, but he's autistic. something's wrong. Let's just move on where everyone didn't really know not everyone, I shouldn't say everybody, but it was kind of like, I think this is a societal thing too. Like you don't have to alter the way you speak to me because I have a neurodiverse child. You can just ask me how I'm doing with everything. How is it? But like, I feel like people feel like they might not be comfortable doing that. Like, look, my life is already like, I'm already in it. I'm in it. Help me. You want to come in it with me? Because right now I'm trying to climb my way out any way I can. Because balance doesn't exist, as Alexis would say. It does not exist. And I agree 100%. I used to be like, balance, balance. No, you can't. It's impossible. But I think you can just do the best that you can. I think that's all anyone can do. Right. Yes, I think so. (laughs) I I agree. But yeah, I I think. I can't remember what I was going to say. Now you, you've rubbed off on me now. Now I'm forgetting things. Maybe I need a bucket of coffee. I just had an energy drink. That should be holding me out, but it's not. The world's gone crazy. Yeah, but you know what, though? I think what we should be thinking about right now in the world is how are we going to be able to transition back in a way that's going to be graceful, mindful, and logical, right? Because right now Good there's luck. a lot. Well, you know what? I want to have faith. You know, know that I'm very optimistic so, and you so know that I want to have hope. You're in a hippie. I am. It is. <laughs> I do. I want to hope that we, that the world uses this as an opportunity to be more kind, to kind of take a look at what we can do as a whole, to just do better, be better and be more prepared. and help ease that transition and think about a lot of people that are going to have a very delicate road to navigate through this transition. So I think people that have the ability to do as much and support whatever within their control, they just have to focus on that. And that's really all that we can do. And I mean, this this will be coming out in a few weeks, and the world's going to be a very different place from. I wonder. Where I know. It is right now, and I think like, that's a good message. Like, if 
you're listening to this and it's you know free, like close to when it's released and it's a few weeks down the track from when we are recording it which is probably kind of relatively at the start you know this whole global pandemic thing um yeah, yeah we're a weekend yeah. we're about a weekend in america it's march 25th for reference for, for me for you it's march 24th, 24th. for me so, I've acquired toilet paper after days. <laughs> no, like but a like time capsules journal. Thing. I I also think we've also seen what happens when people don't know what's happening. People yeah. panic, and then what happens is we don't think about if everyone just bought what they needed when they needed it. Nothing was really changing. Yeah, you might use more toilet paper, but not like hordes of like Costco rolls of them. Like you'll be all right. But I get it and I understand it and I'm not knocking it. It breaks me. I wish there was something we can do more to support everybody to just kind of calm it down. And I think like, that's why I'm trying to use Instagram's present to like be kind and just kind of break it up with all of that because this is all uncharted territory and we're kind of relearning and re-navigating what we're supposed to do literally minute by minute. What? What tips or advice would you give to the the people of the future when this comes out who might be living in a very different world? Let's say there's a potential that the lockdowns and that sort of thing are still going to be going. People are going to be at home. They may even be more severe. What sort of, from a mental health perspective, what sort of tips, tricks, ideas, concepts do you think might help people in that time? trying to think ahead into a very uncertain world I know but no I think people need to be checking in now more than ever and even if you know or have friends that are alone or in isolation you should be checking up on them Um, and really if we're at a point now where it's like been a month away from society and pretty much only interacting with the people that you are with on a day-to-day basis get out there, start talking to people like via Facebook or, you know, there are so many people are doing so many awesome things right now that you can have access to like our local, um, bookstore, the frugal frigate. I love this place. It's awesome. It's what it's called. It is. is, I swear. No, it's, (laughs) that's the bookstore. It's in my town. It's awesome. And they're doing like virtual story readings They're doing delivery uh, books. So if you're feeling like this is too much, try to get outside. Even if you just get outside for like five minutes, getting outside, doing some mindfulness activity. And even if you're listening to this and you're finding yourself like stuck, I always say, take it 10 seconds at a time. You could do anything for 10 seconds. I feel like that's from, oh my God, I can't think of the name of the TV show, who it is. It's from what's her name from the office. She has her show, Kelly, and she says something. Or not Kelly. Oh, the Mindy Project? No, it's not Mindy. It's the other one. It's not Kelly. Oh my gosh. Erin. It's Erin. It's Erin. And she like, I don't know. It's she was like captured and then back in the world. And she's like, you can do anything for 10 oh, seconds. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Kimmy Schmidt. Yes. And yes. I was just saying this to Alexis today too. I was like, listen, we could do anything for 10 seconds. So just, you, you just got to take it and breathe. And the more you're honoring where you're at, 
it's like that self-efficacy part. Like, where are you at assessing where yourself is? And if you're feeling like you need more support, try to reach out and find the support. Or if you know that there's somebody that could be needing it, like just make sure you're doing double check-ins on everybody around you because now more than ever, like, and it's so funny because we're already a virtual world, right? So many people are always so stuck on their phones or technology and now people want to crave and go outside again. And it's like, we should be, I go, I'm, I'm now listen, I love that we get to stay home, but I'm missing being able to go out and, you know, but you, you miss the option. I think that's one of the big things that I think people are, are I think that's one of the biggest things that's going to start affecting people's mental health is the lack yes. of choice and control. Whereas well, even if you were a homebody before, you still had the choice of going out. You could go and get a drink at the bar or whatever it was. You had that option, even if you didn't do it. I got the option to go skydiving. I don't want to do it, but I have that <laughs> choice if I ever decide on the spur of a moment, like, oh, I'm going to do this. Whereas now that that choice and control which is one of i believe to be one of one of the biggest things for anyone's mental health is is choice and control which is why we in healthcare we try and give as much choice and control to the people that we work with um because it can have such a positive effect on people uh was it the i can't remember the name of the book the the guy that was in the I think he was in Auschwitz. Um oh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, he he wrote a whole book about like the meaning of life and finding meaning in the uh in places where you wouldn't normally think it to be. Like, I don't know, a prison camp. You wouldn't really think there'd be too much in there. But um yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things. So well, I would encourage people to focus on the things that you can control because you're not going to be able to do much else. And by focusing on the things that you don't have control of, and I've already seen it now with the restrictions yeah. rolling out, uh, you're only going to be impacting your own mental health. You're only going to be hurting your own mental health by focusing on those things that you can't do or that you don't have control over. So focus on the little things. Right. And I think too, like, even I know for us, like, we're just doing sidewalk chalk, like out in the front. So when people drive by, they'll have nice messages. Or when we are walking, we're keeping social distancing, but we're waving, we're smiling. Like these little things are the things we can control. Just like that woman was like, go get that toilet paper, girl. Like she saw the distress in my eyes. Like, oh no, I'm so late. Like what's happening? I just want to buy toilet paper. But she didn't have to do that. Yeah. You know, and I think, I don't think people realize act of kindness and how much it can impact and ripple. And I think now more than ever, I know I'm going to get the people that are like, just stop talking your kindness, madness. Like, but I mean, it really is true. Being kind is just a smile. It's just a look. It's just this, just something so simple. It doesn't have to be these like grand acts. Like it's just being human. I don't know. That's what I kind of see it as being human. And also too, 
by focusing on what we can control, there's a lot of people that are stuck together in like a unit. And if one person in the unit goes down, it's going to ripple too and cause other things. So we have to kind of be mindful of the things that we can control within our units and take a look and check in with where everybody is so that no one's getting too burnt out or they're kind of taking turns because I think that's what happens when you navigate uncharted waters, when you don't have a certainty when there is no end date. Like my dad just got laid off from his job today. Like, yeah, okay, he's retired, but this was just extra work. But it that's the point. Like yeah. people are losing their jobs. People are, you know, pe- kids are not in school. Like this is across the world. Like it's not just here in the state. Like it's everywhere, right? So I think it also kind of shows me there are other problems. Okay. So I really don't like to be able to like, there are people worse than me. So I want to like alter my thing, but it's more about how can I objectively now reassess and look at the world and compare kind of the size of my problems to the size of the world's problems. And how can I navigate as just a good human to do my part and that has nothing identified with like a political party or a movement. It has to do with being a kind human. It, does, it shouldn't matter. That's it. It's, I, I want to be a good human because all lives matter. That's it. So, I, think, I think we can tie that back into what we were talking about before with therapeutic yourself. Your, your kindness message, you're part of whoever you're interacting with, you are part of their environment. And if, a smile or a kind word or something like that can improve someone's environment. You've had a positive impact on their day, their life, their occupational engagement. So if it helps to think of it like an OT instead of a hippie, then think of it like that. But whatever it is, just do it. I love it. Lovely. Where can people find you if they are hunting? I know most people probably have heard of you. If not for the three or four people that haven't, where can they find you? They can find me at mornings with an OT mom at Instagram. Um, I have a dot in between each name. So like mornings dot. Uh, yep. And then mornings with an OT mom.com um, for right now. Cause there's some things coming soon. So once that's all done, then we'll chat about those things. But for now, you can find me on Instagram. That's the best way to reach me. Um, and that's where I post lots of cool videos like me and my son dancing today and him slapping the crap out of me because he was super excited and me handling it. So it's kind of like, I think what the world needs is to see that just because I'm a therapist and now that I have my own neurodiverse kid, I'm still a mom and a human and I'm right there with you. So my goal is to empower everybody and just lift everybody up because we're all going through our own unique journeys. And just because I'm a therapist and I might be the best person for the job, that does not make it easy. That does not make me more successful. It makes me more tired and more crazy half the time, I feel like. <laughs> but I think what it is, is I just want to I just want to educate and really share my experience and all of my wealth of knowledge because I need to empower the next generation of OT practitioners, of parents, of therapists. We need to start shifting these mindsets as we talk about all the time. 
We need more inclusive healthcare practices. We need more preventative care. We need a better education system that supports our students receiving special education services. Special education is not a place. It is a service. And if we started providing early intervention and preventative supports and services during that critical birth to five area of development when their kids are the most pliable, when neuroplasticity is its greatest, I guarantee you, Barack, we would have a more inclusive world. We would be able to have decreased costs across a healthcare burden, across a lifespan. But the models and the mindset need to change. And that's where the newer generations and us leading them and guiding them to stay strong and navigating through a lot of things that they're not going to be happy with when they get out there in the field. And you got to learn how to navigate that because you're there for the client. And in this world today, no matter what you're doing with all of the different stipulations, with all the people that have no idea what we do, who we are, yet they're in charge of how we deliver services and what our roles should be, we have to just keep fighting and we have to keep advocating and we have to do it loudly because people need to hear us. And if we get the students and the new practitioners and the parents and educators and everybody to be on board with this more inclusive mindset, that's when we start to see those grand shifts, change actually happening because people are just all working together and understanding that when you do what's right by your clients and you do what's best by each individual, that is what it means to have an inclusive world. Can't think of any better way to finish that off. Thanks so much for coming and chatting, dude. I was so excited to be here. I'm so happy that finally got to do it. We finally got to do it. It's been months. Um, But you know what? I like to think of these as opportunities because now our schedules were able to. The stars aligned and. And we got to talk about infant mental health. And we did. And dying to talk about it. (laughs) And it was fun. It was like relaxed and chill. And it was so funny. I was going to like read all of my old books, like highlight certain things. Come on. And I was like, that's not what we're doing here today. Like, I don't need that. Let's let's just chat. But you know how I am, the research-based nerd. But this was so much better because this is what people need. People need to talk more about things that maybe they don't understand or need to learn more info on or just talking in general and being kinder and understanding. That's the goal. That is the aim. Thank you so much for having me on. No, thank you for agreeing to come and like, yay. It's good fun. And I learned a new word, trolley. (laughs) 